Welcome back to Decision Making in Public Service. I hope you enjoyed the Thomas Metzinger uh, lectures or lectures on Thomas Metzinger's book, The Ego Tunnel. And you'll see throughout this book, I think, why we started with trying to dispel the notions of the self and thinking about the neural correlates of consciousness and what that means for things like agency, things like free will, um, things like how we can think about our self. In this book, which is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, you're going to get a wealth of empirical evidence from the fields of psychology and behavioral economics and social cognition about what we have discovered about the ways in which the brain works for decision-making. And to think about this, Daniel Kahneman is going to introduce the notions of System 1 and System 2 thinking, which are related to the title of this book, which are Thinking Fast and Slow. Thinking fast, automatic, intuitive, uh, things that happen below the conscious level are all System 1. And system 2 is more deliberate, methodical, slow, rational thought. And System 2 is also often where we attribute notions, to, to go back to Metzinger, of self and agency and free will. And one of the things that you're going to see is not only is it a myth that, that your conscious self, that your System 2 is independent of these unconscious uh, processes, it is strongly influenced by them and plays a large role in what decision set is available to your conscious self for making decisions. Um, and we're also going to see some of the characteristics of how your conscious system to self is relatively, that requires a lot of attention and effort, is relatively lazy, uh, and defers quite regularly to the system one uh, system of thinking, which associates ideas together automatically, um, it generates norms, it presents surprises to you, it jumps to conclusions. There's going to be all kind of interesting attributes of System 1 and System 2. For these lectures to cover uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, we're going to cover Part 1, which is two systems, um, and then we'll work our way through Part 2, Heuristics and Biases, Part 3, Overconfidence, Part 4, Choices, and Part 5, Two Selves. And my plan for the lectures for this book are to break each lecture down by one of those parts. I'm really excited, I'm really excited to share this book with you. Uh, I was exposed to Daniel Kahneman's work on prospect theory with Amos Tversky in grad school and have been really captured by this idea of systematic errors in decision making. It's uh, what my dissertation was on and a topic that I have returned back to in thinking about in my own research. And this is really, Kahneman really captures, as of 2011, which is when this book was published, the current understanding of how the brain works and how System 1 and System 2 interact together to lead to uh, sometimes good decisions, but also systematically biased decisions, systematic errors. 
And to give you an overview for what's coming today, um, we're going to cover nine chapters from Thinking Fast and Slow. We're going to start with uh, the introduction, and then uh, Kahneman introduces the characters of the story. He gives us more attributes of System 1 and System 2 that he's going to use as uh, metaphors for uh, functions of the brain. We're going to talk about how attention and effort is required for System 2, but the, system, the attention and effort really tire out system two and deplete the ego as the term that's used there. Um, and that system two is a bit lazy. Uh, it's called the lazy controller and often just takes the inputs from system one, the intuitions, the quick snap judgments, uncritically, the emotions, and just endorses them. We're also going to talk about how system one is the uh, associative machine. It pieces uh, in uh, automatically, intuitively, it associates different thoughts and events together in ways that is often useful, but in particular domains can be uh, harmful. We're going to talk about cognitive ease as compared to cognitive strain, how cognitive ease is a state that we like, and it requires m much effort and attention to, uh, to engage in cognitive strain. Talk about in chapter six, norms, surprises, and causes, and about how system one is good at developing uh, coherent norm stories for all types of events and situations, that it quickly notices when something it doesn't fit in with the norm, and how it, the brain and, and system one is always attributing causal stories to two events that, uh, that go together. We're going to talk about how the brain um, is a machine for jumping to conclusions. That System 1 delivers up these automatic causal stories, and it requires attention and effort from System 2 to examine those critically, but um, it's a challenge to do that regularly, and so the brain is sort of biased in the direction of jumping to quick conclusions. And then we're going to talk about how it does that, how judgments are, happen to jump to quick conclusions, We'll talk about some basic biases and heuristics there, and that one of the things in the final chapter that we do is we often take a hard question that has been presented to us and substitute in an easier question that we uh, have an intuitive answer for. Okay, there's plenty to get into here, so I'm just going to jump right into it. I'm going to be a little light on examples because there are a ton in the book and really focus on just the big concepts. So I strongly recommend you to purchase this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, and dive into some of more some more of the evidence. And any of the claims that you find hard to believe or simply unbelievable about yourself, I really encourage you to um, carefully examine the evidence from these empirical studies uh, and see what other explanations you can come up with. So starting from the introduction, Kahneman tells us that a big part of what he's trying to do here is give us a larger vocabulary, an everyday conversation vocabulary for thinking about how the brain works and how it affects our, uh, how decision making is uh, affected by the way in which the brain works. He says, quote, when you are asked, when you are asked what you are thinking about, you can normally answer. 
You believe you know what goes on in your mind, which often consists of one conscious thought leading in an orderly way to another. But that is not the only way the mind works, nor indeed is that the typical way. Most impressions and thoughts arise in your conscious experience without your knowing how they got there. So things just appear to you in your conscious state, and it's not exactly clear where those come from. He goes on to say, quote, the mental work that produces impressions, intuitions, and many decisions goes on in silence in our mind, end quote. Finally, he says, quote, as we navigate our lives, we normally allow ourselves to be guided by impressions and feelings, and the confidence we have in our intuitive beliefs and preferences is usually justified, but not always. We are often confident even when we are wrong, and an objective observer is more likely to detect our errors than we are. End quote. So Kahneman says uh, that this book represents his current understanding of judgment and decision making. This is really the um, bringing together of all of his work and the cutting edge work in behavioral economics, in uh cognitive science, neuroscience, and social cognition. And there's a lot of empirical evidence he, he works into this book. He highlights that throughout his work, um, as they begin to study judgment and decision-making more carefully, uh, they proposed, he says, quote, we propose that they used resemblance as a simplifying heuristic, roughly a rule of thumb, to make a difficult judgment. The reliance on heuristic caused predictable biases, systematic errors, and their predictions. This realization, this way of thinking about decision-making, is pretty much at the core of how Kahneman thinks about decision-making. He goes on to say, quote, We documented systematic errors in the thinking of normal people, and we traced these errors to the design of the machinery of cognition rather than the corruption of thought by emotion. End quote. So I think irrationality is often blamed on people being emotional and that taking away from logical, rational thought. But it turns out there's more to this than just being influenced by emotions. There are systematic features of how the brain works, the unconscious brain works, and presents information to the system two, to the conscious, conscious deciding brain um, that is a function of the way in which that's done, not just emotions interrupting some rational thought. For example, Kahneman says, quote, students of policy have noted that the availability heuristic helps explain why some issues are highly salient in the public's mind while others are neglected. People tend to assess the relative importance of issues by the ease with which they are retrieved from memory, and this is largely determined by the extent of coverage in the media, end quote. So think about this, one of the heuristics, that, and we're going to talk more about what these exactly are, one of the shortcuts, one of the judgments uh, that your brain makes is by using this availability heuristic. And this is the idea that whatever's easy for you to, to recount, whatever's easy for you to access in your memory, um, you give more weight to. This is going to have all kinds of uh, effects for the types of dec the decision choice set that we have, for what decisions we make, for what decisions we even consider, for what problems we think about solving. Uh, the more something's covered in the media, as the book says, 
the more likely it is to be easy for you to recall an example of it being covered, whereas something that is less covered is getting less attention and it's harder for people to recall it in their brain. Kahneman goes on to say, quote, a recurrent theme of this book is that luck plays a large role in every story of success. It is almost always easy to identify a small change in the story that would have turned a remarkable achievement into a mediocre outcome. We're not going to focus as much on this observation today, but this is, has some real important consequences for how we think about public service and public policy. Something that I hope you can spend some time reflecting on. Kahneman goes on to say, quote, my aim here is to present a view of how the mind works that draws on recent developments in cognitive and social psychology, end quote. He says we can now draw a richer and more balanced picture in which skill and heuristics are alternative sources of intuitive judgments and choices. Um, he talks about how expert intuition isn't some magical skill that experts have. Um, there's, it's much more simpler than that, actually. It's repeated um, exposure to a similar context that essentially takes the assessing of that context and automates it in System 1. Herbert Simon, uh, one of the greats in decision making, uh, one of the uh, started out as a scholar in public administration, did a lot of fascinating work on decision making, moved into computer science and artificial intelligence. Um, Kahneman says, "Quote: You can feel Simon's impatience with the mytholo mythologizing mythologizing of expert intuition when he writes." Quote from Simon. The situation has provided a cue. This cue has given the expert access to information stored in memory, and the information provides the answer. Intu intuition is nothing more and nothing less than recognition. End quote. So there's going to be some interesting uh, ways to think about expert intuition, really as just repeated exposure to contexts that are similar. Okay, so Kahneman goes on to kind of, uh, in the introduction, to talk about um, how we search for intuitive solutions, um, that's something System 1 provides to System 2 automatically, and this is often very helpful, it's helped us be adaptive as humans, but um, in some cases it misleads us, and particularly in cases that require more deli deliberate and effortful thinking. So let's move on. Um, the first bit of this is, uh, then we move on to chapter one, and Kahneman gives us the characters of the story, and here he defines them as two separate systems. He says, quote, System one operates automatically and quickly with little or no effort, and no sense of voluntary control, whereas System 2 allocates attention to the effortful mental activities that demand, demand it, including complex computations. 
The operations of System 2 are often associated with the subjective experience of agency, choice, and concentration. Which, if you think back again to Metzinger, System 2 is what we perceive as our conscious experiencing self, our phenomenal self-model. Kahneman goes on to say, quote, when we think of ourselves, we identify with System 2, the conscious reasoning self that has beliefs, makes choices, and decides what to think about and what to do. Although System 2 believes itself to be where the action is, the automatic System 1 is the hero of the book. System 1 is providing the choice set to the System 2, it's jumping to conclusions, it's not lazy, it doesn't require attention and effort, it's really, in a large part, running the show. Um, and then Kahneman goes on to highlight that for System 2 to operate, it requires attention and it's disrupted when attention is drawn away. So this sort of fuel for System 2, again, is required attention and required effort. He says, quote, the often used phrase, pay attention, is apt. You dispose of a limited budget of attention that you can allocate to activities. And if you try to go beyond your uh, budget, you will fail. Um, he says, everyone has some awareness of the limited capacity of attention, and our social behavior makes allowances for these limitations. When the driver of a car is overtaking a truck on a narrow road, for example, adult passengers quite sensibly stop talking. They know that distracting the driver is not a good idea, and they also suspect that he is temporarily deaf and will not hear what they say. This highlights, um, as Kahneman says here, intense focusing on a task can make people effectively blind, even to stimuli that normally attract attention. Um, and Kahneman uses a fun example uh, from some experimental results where the People participating in the experiment are told to focus on uh, a task. They're fo focused. Uh, they're told to focus on counting some individuals, um, playing a game, playing basketball. One wearing white shirts, the other wearing black. They're told to count all of the white shirts um, and ignore the black shirts. And then, as while they're doing that, someone dressed up in a gorilla suit comes and dances. And it turns out that um, a large percentage of the people per, uh, participating in the experiment don't even see the gorilla. They completely miss it. And so this, to Kahneman, highlights that we can be blind to the obvious and we are also blind to our blindness. Kahneman goes on and says, quote, when System 1 runs into difficulty, it calls on System 2 to support more detailed and specific processing that may solve the problem of the moment. System 2 is mobilized when a question arises for which System 1 does not offer an answer. So if System 1, going about its business, uh, using fast thinking, intuition, repeated experiences, uh, but sometimes when it's presented with information, that it doesn't really know what to do with, presents this to System 2 for deliberate thinking. He says, quote, in summary, most of what you, your System 2, think and do originates in your System 1. But System 2 takes over when things get difficult, and it normally has the last word. 
The division of labor between System 1 and System 2 is highly efficient. It minimizes effort and optimizes performance. The arrangement works well most of the time because System 1 is generally very good at what it does. Its models of familiar situations are accurate, its short-term predictions are usually accurate as well, and its initial reactions to challenges are swift and generally appropriate. System 1 has biases, however, systematic errors that it is prone to make in specialized circumstances. Excuse me, in specified circumstances. And a large part of this book is going to be understanding when those systematic errors might occur and how we might do a better job at minimizing those systematic errors. He goes on to say, one of the tasks of System 2 is to overcome the impulses of System 1. In other words, System 2 is in charge of self-control. So essentially, System 1 presents potential actions, potential thoughts to be acted upon, and System 2 plays the role of the regulator. Should I actually follow through on this impulse? Uh, is it appropriate in this situation? Uh, what will be the consequences of it? We kind of simulate in our minds what might be the outcomes of the behaviors that System 1, the unconscious intuitive process, presents to System 2 for making a decision. Kahneman goes on to say, quote, because System 1 operates automatically and cannot be turned off at will, errors of intuitive thought are often difficult to prevent. Biases cannot always be avoided because System 2 may have no clue to the error. Even when cues to likely errors are available, errors can be prevented only by the, enhancing moni the enhanced monitoring and effortful activity of System 2. So one of the themes also is going to be it's really hard to keep System 2 engaged and in control because it requires effort and attention, which we're going to talk about momentarily, and effort and attention are depleting. Um, and when effort and attention have depleted, System 2 can't do as good of a job of checking the impulses of System 1, and so System 1 has more control in those situations. Kahneman says, <clears throat> the best we can do is a compromise. Learn to recognize situations in which mistakes are likely and try harder to avoid significant mistakes when the stakes are high. And at each of the chapters, um, Kahneman closes with something that I think is fun, and he tries to put some of the new language in everyday situations. So he says here, quote, speaking of System 1 and System 2, and he provides some potential examples of these terms. And uh, here's the quotes he uses. Quote, he had an impression, but some of his impressions are illusions. Second one, this was a pure System 1 response. She reacted to the threat before she recognized it. Third, this is your System 1 talking. Slow down and let your System 2 take control. All right, this gets us to Chapter 2, Attention and Effort. Um, Kahneman says, however, there are vital tasks that only System 2 can perform because they require effort and acts of self-control in which the intuitions and impulses of System 1 are overcome. And it gives a detailed explanation of mental effort and how mental effort is also related to the dilation in your pupils, that you can measure people's effort by the relative dilation of their pupils. 
which is wild. Um, he says, uh, in the, the researcher that Kahneman highlights is Eckhart Hess, and he says, one of Hess's findings especially captured my attention. He had noticed that the pupils are sensitive indicators of mental effort. They dilate substantially when people multiply two-digit numbers, and they dilate more if the problems are harder than if they are easy. His observations indicated that response to mental effort is distinct from emotional arousal. He goes on to say that um, in some of this work on mental effort, uh, that as uh, mentioned in the previous chapter, that when engaged in a mental sprint and lots of mental effort, people may become effectively blind, um, completely tune out other sensory cues around them. And you might have this also um, if you're working really hard on a math problem or focusing really hard on trying to understand a situation, you might notice um, that you lose your sense of paying attention to anything else around you. Okay, Kahneman goes on to say, quote, as you become skilled in a task, it de its demand for energy diminishes. Studies of the brain have shown that the pattern of activity associated with an action changes as skill increases with fewer brain regions involved. He says, a general law of least effort applies to cognitive as well as physical exertion. The law asserts that if there are several ways of achieving the same goal, people eventually gravitate to the least demanding course of action. In the economy of action, effort is a cost, and the acquisition of skill is driven by the balance of benefits and costs. Laziness is built deep into our nature. So Kahneman's pointing out here that as you repeat a task, it become, it requires less effort to do it well, and that in general, we have a law of least effort when it comes to cognitive processing. We're trying to find the least demanding course of action. And this is why laziness is built deep into our nature. And where this is going to come up again when we're talking about the lazy controller system 2 in a moment. Uh, a few more things about system 2 that Kahneman highlights in this chapter. He says um, system 2 is the only one that can follow rules, compare objects on several attributes, and make deliberate choices between options. The automatic system one does not have these capabilities. System one detects simple relations. They are all alike. The son is much taller than the father and excels at integrating information about one thing, but it does not deal with multiple distinct topics at once, nor is it adept at using purely statistical information. So if you have learned, if you've wondered why learning statistics, those of you that have spent some time learning statistics, is quite hard. Part of it is it requires the engaging of the lazy system too. And statistical thinking is not naturally intuitive part of the system one. He goes on to say a crucial capability of system two is the adoption of task sets. Uh, psychologists speak of executive control to describe the adoption and termination of task sets, and neuroscientists have identified the main regions of the brain that serve the executive function. Um, this is the prefrontal, neo, prefrontal 
um, area of the brain called the neocortex is really one of the areas playing a big role in this. And this is how we experience sense of picking tasks, sense of agency, deciding what to do, when to end a set of tasks, when to move on to something else, what that next thing should be. This is the executive control uh, that is associated with system two. Kind of goes on to talk about how can the ability to control attention is not simply a measure of intelligence, um, that it explains performance over and above intelligence, this ability to control your attention. And the basic takeaway from this chapter is that attention and effort are required to, uh, to utilize system two and engage it to critically observe and examine the intuitive uh, quick responses that system one provides. At the end of this chapter, uh, again, Kahneman provides a couple of examples of using these terms in everyday language. He has four here that I'll share with you. First is, I won't, I won't try to solve this while driving. This is a pupil dilating task. It requires mental effort. Second, the law of least effort is operating here. He will think as little as possible. Third, she did not forget about the meeting. She was completely focused on something else when the meeting was set and she just didn't hear you. Fourth one, what came to my mind was an intuition from system one. I'll have to start over and search my memory more deliberately. This takes us into chapter three, which is titled The Lazy Controller. And the lazy controller, again, I've mentioned a couple times, is a metaphor for system two uh, being engaged in active deliberate thinking. It requires energy that is depleted the more system two is engaged. And in that way, it often avoids deliberate engaged thinking. He says, a comment says, self-control and deliberate thought apparently draw on the same limited budget of effort. And so we don't have unlimited amount of effort and it uh, is required for both self-control and deliberate thought. And there are some interesting studies in this chapter that uh, highlight when active thought is engaged, for example, active deliberate thought, self-control is weakened. He also mentions the concept of flow, um, and he says flow neatly separates the two forms of effort, concentration on the task and the deliberate control of attention. Uh, in a state of flow, however, maintaining focused attention on these absorbing activities requires no exertion of self-control and thereby freeing resources to be directed to the task at hand. So you can get in states where sustained effort is comfortable uh, and you do it with some sense of ease even though a lot of concentration, uh, lots of focused attention is required um, no, uh, even though a lot of, let's say it again, even though um, in a state of flow, he says, however, maintaining focused attention on these absorbing activities requires no exertion of self-control. So you can develop states where self-control is not needed to focus your attention. It's some type of task that you enjoy, that you've gotten comfortable with, that uh, you've done a lot, and so you can focus your attention 
but it doesn't deplete self-control. Kahneman talks about what he says, the busy and depleted system too. He says, people who are cognitively busy are also more likely to make selfish choices, use sexist language, and make superficial judgments in social situations. He says, the conclusion is straightforward. Self-control requires attention and effort. Another way of saying this is that controlling thoughts and behaviors is one of the tasks that System 2 performs. Um, but it turns out that these things are tiring. Continuing to engage in self-control and effort is tiring. And this leads to a phenomenon that has been named, as Kahneman tells us, ego depletion. And he gives, an, he gives an example. He says, the emotional effort in the first phase of the experiment reduces the ability to withstand the pain of sustained muscle contraction. And ego-depleted people therefore succumb more quickly to the urge to quit. In another experiment, people are first depleted by a task in which they eat virtuous foods, such as radishes and celery, while resisting the temptation to indulge in chocolate and rich cookies. Later, these people will give up earlier than normal when faced with a difficult cognitive task. Kahneman goes on to say, the evidence is persuasive. Activities that impose high demands on system two, lots of effort, lots of attention, require self-control. And the exertion of self-control is depleting and unpleasant. Unlike cognitive load, which is how many different tasks you can do at one time, ego depletion is at least in part a loss of motivation. After exerting self-control in one task, you do not feel like making an effort in another although you could do it if you really had to. Kahneman goes on to say, the bold implication of this idea is that the effects of ego depletion could be undone by ingesting glucose, and Baumeister and his colleagues have confirmed this hypothesis in several experiments. So what's interesting about this idea of ego depletion and this idea of if you sustain a lot of effort and concentration, you don't want to do that anymore, this can be recovered by ingesting glucose. Um, and this is shown in a couple of different experiments. By the way, some good sources of glucose, after reading this, I looked back up again, is honey and grapes. Kahneman goes on to say, intuitive errors are normally much more frequent among ego-depleted people. Um, and so those that have had their ego depleted, have worn out their system too, are tired from engaged, uh, concentrated effort, are more likely to just believe what system one tells it, and thus have intuitive errors. I'm going to read an example uh, for you of this that ties to uh, uh, ties to public policy, which has um, been one of the more uh, disturbing uh, consequences, uh, one of the more disturbing aspects of ego depletion and what it does for important decision-making. Kahneman says, a disturbing demonstration of depletion effects in judgment was recently reported in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The unwitting participants in the study were eight parole judges in Israel. They spend entire days reviewing applications for parole. The cases are presented in random order, and the judges spend little time on each one, an average of six minutes. 
The default decision is denial of parole. Only 35% of requests are approved. The exact time of each decision is recorded, and the times of the judge's three food breaks, morning break, lunch, and afternoon break, during the day are recorded as well. The authors of the study plotted the proportion of approved requests against the time since the last food break. The proportion spikes after each meal when about 65% of requests are granted. During the two hours or so until the judge's next feeding, the approval rate drops steadily to about zero just before the meal. As you might expect, this is an unwelcome result, and the authors carefully checked many alternative explanations. The best possible account of the data provides bad news. Tired and hungry judges tend to fall back on the earlier default position of denying requests for parole. So the time, that's the end of the quote there. So the time when judges eat and when their case is presented to them based on how long it's been since they have eaten has real consequences for whether someone is granted parole or not. This is not good. So, uh, Kahneman does a little bit more to illustrate the lazy system too, um, and highlights this with the bat and ball example, which uh, I won't go over here, but is an interesting one. And he says, this experiment, um, it's got a couple of experiments here, has discouraging implications for reasoning in everyday life. It suggests that when people believe a conclusion is true, they are also very likely to believe arguments that appear to support it, even when these arguments are unsound. We have all kinds of anecdotal examples of this in our own lives. Everyone has a friend, I imagine, who you can tell because of their political beliefs are endorsing some line of argument that doesn't make any sense but because their political party endorses it, they believe the logic behind it. We're all guilty of this in varying degrees. But it's troubling that once the conclusions are accepted or believed, that the arguments will also be believed, even if they're not very good quality arguments. And Kahneman says, if system one is involved, the conclusion comes first, and the arguments follow. Kahneman talks a little bit about intelligence control and irrationality. Um, and let me just read you a little bit of that. Uh, there's some examples here that um, highlight that control, self-control, is related to intelligence. So, for example, uh, talking about a study of, of children and trying to keep them from eating a cookie and delaying uh, 15 minutes the, the reward of the cookie. He says, A significant difference in intellectual aptitude emerged. The children who had shown more control as four-year-olds had substantially higher scores on tests of intelligence. In another example, he says, the testers found that training attention not only improved executive control, scores on nonverbal tests of intelligence also improved, and the improvement was maintained for several months. Other research by the same group identified specific genes that are involved in the control of attention, 
showing that parenting techniques also affected this ability and demonstrated a close connection between the children's ability to control their attention and their ability to control their emotions. So you're seeing some relationships here between intelligence and attention and also on an ability that if we can train attention it improves executive control, it improves being in control of system two and making decisions and it can also improve uh, test, nonverbal tests of intelligence. So it seems that the evidence suggests that genetics do play a role here, parenting plays a role, um, but that you can train attention and that will have improvements in executive control and scores on intelligence tests. Um, Kahneman talks about Shane Frederick, uh, who constructed a cognitive reflection test, and who Kahneman says, he went on to study the characteristics of students who score very low on this test. The supervisory function of System 2 is weak in these people, and found that they are prone to answer questions with the first idea that comes to mind, and unwilling to invest in the effort needed to check their intuitions. So his cognitive reflection test provides some well uh, studied examples of if you score low on that cognitive reflection test, your system two is maybe particularly lazy and is more apt to believe or more likely to believe the intuitions given to it by system one rather than considering them more critically. Again, as he says here, system one is impulsive intuitive, System 2 is capable of reasoning and is cautious, but at least for some people, it is also lazy. Alright, at the end of this chapter on the lazy controller, Kahneman again provides us a couple of comments on uh, use in everyday language. He says, first, she did not have to struggle to stay on task for hours. She was in a state of flow. Second, his ego was depleted after a long day of meetings, so he just turned to standard operating procedures instead of thinking through the problem. Third, he didn't bother to check whether what he said made sense. Does he usually have a lazy system too, or was he unusually tired? Four, and final. Unfortunately, she tends to say the first thing that comes to her mind. She probably also has trouble delaying gratification. Weak system two. The next chapter is the associative machine, and in here, uh, Kahneman gives us a, a bit more details about how System 1 uh, works and puts ideas together, and uh, gives some, some nice examples of this uh, about how when you see a word, it your brain automatically associates it in System 1 to other words. Uh, he says, when that happens, the events that took place as a result of your seeing the words happened by a process called associative activation. Ideas that have been evoked trigger many other ideas and a spreading cascade of activity in your brain. You might think of this as um, an idea being a stone thrown into water and that the puddles reverberate throughout the brain. He says, all this happens quickly and all at once, yielding in a self-reinforcing pattern of cognitive, emotional, and physical responses that is both diverse and integrated. It has been called associatively coherent.
He goes on to say, The mechanism that causes these mental events has been known for a long time. It is the association of ideas. We all understand from experience that ideas follow each other in our conscious mind in a fairly ordered way. He says, Psychologists think of ideas as nodes in a vast network called associative memory in which each idea is linked to many others. He says, an idea that has been activated does not merely evoke one other idea. It activates many ideas, which in turn activate others. Furthermore, only a few of the activated ideas will register in consciousness. Most of the work of associative thinking is silent, hidden from our conscious selves. The notion that we have limited access to the workings of our minds is difficult to accept because naturally it is alien to our experience. But it is true, you know far less about yourself than you feel you do. There's some neuroscience that, uh, lots of neuroscience that um, supports this and the way in which neurons work uh, fits with this idea as well. I won't go into details here, but there's a, some interesting work done on this. The most recent that I've seen is by Ray Kurzweil, How to Create a Mind, which talks about the ways in which neurons work. Uh, so I, I really recommend that. But this idea of having one thought that spreads is also fits with our understanding of how neurons in the brain fire and activate those near them, the neurons near them. Kahneman talks about uh, priming, and priming is, uh, is a little hard to wrestle with as well. And... Let's see how to how to put this one. He says priming takes many priming effects take many forms. He says if the idea of eat is currently on your mind, whether you are conscious of it or not, you will be quicker than usual to recognize the word soup when it is spoken in a whisper or presented in a blurry font. Um, and he also uses the example here, like ripples on a pond, activation spreads through a small part of the vast network of associated ideas. He goes on to say, another major advance in our understanding of memory was the discovery that priming is not restricted to concepts and words. You cannot know this from conscious experience, of course, but you must accept the alien idea that your actions and your emotions can be primed by events of which you are not even aware. So not only can you have one word in your mind like eat and then more quickly recognize the word soup than if you had had a different word in your mind, if you associate sets of words it can also in your mind through a priming effect it can also affect your behavior and the example used is kind of a funny one I think these uh, students were given the words Florida forgetful bald gray or wrinkle and then when they walked to their next destination they actually walked slower on average He says, as Barak had predicted, the young people who had fashioned a sentence from words with an elderly theme walked down the hallway significantly more slowly than the others. So sensitive to priming that just words associated with elderly people caused or was related to the group of individuals walking slow, more slowly down the hallway. This remarkable priming, as Kahneman says, Phenomenon, this remarkable priming phenomenon, the influencing of an action by the idea, is known as the ideomotor effect. 
a couple examples of this uh, that Kahneman gives. But he goes on to say, studies of priming effects have yielded discoveries that threaten our self-image as a conscious and autonomous authors of our judgments and our choices. We now know that the effects of priming can reach into every corners of our lives. He gives some more examples here. He says, money-primed people become more independent than they would be without the associative trigger. They persevered almost twice as long in trying to solve a very difficult problem before they asked the experimenter for help a crisp demonstration of increased self-reliance. Money-prime people are also more selfish. They were much less willing to spend time helping another student who pretended to be confused about an experimental task. He goes on to say, The general theme of these findings is that the idea of money primes individualism, a reluctance to be involved with others, to depend on others, or to accept demands from others. Well, money priming is interesting. Another researcher, Kathleen Vose, who Kahneman mentions, finds something or suggests something about how this can be used in, um, in some more uh, strong or in some ways that get at our core identities or beliefs about the world. She sa he says, Kahneman says, about those, her experiments are profound. Her findings suggest that living in a culture that surrounds us with reminders of money may shape our behavior and our attitudes in ways that we do not know about and of which we may not be proud. Some cultures provide frequent reminders of respect. Others constantly remind their members of God. And some societies prime obedience by large images of the dear leader. Can there be any doubt that the ubiquitous portraits of the national leader in Dictatorial, dictatorial, dictatorial societies not only convey the feeling that Big Brother is watching, but also lead to an actual reduction in spontaneous thought and independent action. So you can imagine if entire societies are primed in a certain way, that might have systematic impacts on how the people within those societies behave. Kahneman says... The idea you should focus on, however, is that disbelief is not an option. The results are not made up, nor are they statistical flukes. You have no choice but to accept that the major conclusions of these studies are true. More important, you must accept that they are also true about you. It's easy to imagine that this happens to other people, but it's much harder to come to terms with the fact that you also are victim of these priming effects. In closing of this chapter, Kahneman gives us again a couple of water cooler talk quotes. First one, the sight of all these people in uniforms does not prime creativity. Second, the world makes much less sense than you think. The coherence comes mostly from the way your mind works. Third, they were primed to find flaws and this is exactly what they found. Fourth, his system one constructed a story and his system two believed it. It happens to all of us. Fifth, I made myself smile, and I'm actually feeling better. Next chapter is on cognitive ease. Um, and cognitive ease is defined as uh, in opposition to cognitive strain. And uh, 
Cognitive strain is affected by both the current level of effort and the presence of unmet demands. Um, and this cognitive ease to cognitive strain dial, as Kahneman talks about it, is going to have some real important impacts for um, for our, for our, for our minds. And he goes on to highlight a, a number of things about cognitive ease versus cognitive strain. Um, he has that the causes of cognitive ease being related to repeated experience, a clear display, a primed idea, and a good mood. And some of the consequences of cognitive ease includes that things feel familiar, feels true, feels good, feels effortless. And so in a real way, we crave, naturally, cognitive ease. But, as Kahneman says, when you feel strained, you are more likely to be vigilant and suspicious, invest more effort in what you are doing, feel less comfortable, and make fewer errors. But you are also less intuitive and less creative than usual. So we're starting to see some trade-offs between even though cognitive ease makes us feel good, feels effortless, feels true, um, when, we, when in a state of cognitive ease, we are less vigilant, we are less suspicious, we spend less effort uh, and what we are doing. Uh, but we do feel more comfortable, um, but we make more errors. But in a cognitive state of ease, you are more intuitive and more creative. So some trade-offs here. Uh, Kahneman talks about uh, a couple of illusions, the illusions of remembering, the illusions of truth, um, and he says sort of about these, um, the impression of familiarity is produced by system one and system two relies on the impression for a true false judgment. We're starting to see some of this substitution that's going to come down here in a little bit. That system one, when system one presents something as familiar to system two, system two, if it doesn't have other types of quality evidence that can be easily brought to to bear, it re it relies on this impression of familiarity to whether for whether or not something is true or false. Kahneman says anything that makes it easier for the associative machine to run smoothly will also bias beliefs. A reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition, because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. He goes on to say, if you cannot remember the source of a statement and have no way to relate it to other things that you know, you have no option but to go with the sense of cognitive ease. And where cognitive ease is a stand-in for whether or not something is true or not. So um, Kahneman says, how do you know that a statement is true? If it is strongly linked by logic or association to other beliefs, beliefs or preferences you hold, or comes from a source that you trust and like, you will feel a sense of cognitive ease. The trouble is that there may be other causes for your feeling of ease, including the quality of the font the appealing, and the appealing rhythm of the prose, and you have no simple way of tracing your feelings to their source. 
one thing that we do learn uh, in the next section here, and Kahneman says, performance is was better with the bad font. Cognitive strain, whatever its source, mobilizes system two, which is more likely to reject the intuitive answers suggested by system one. So there's the idea here that if something is is clearly printed and bold, it's appealing, it's easy to read, you are less likely to engage in system two um, and engage in some cognitive strain because it's so easy to read, but simply changing the font to be more blurry or harder to read induces cognitive strain, which makes you more suspicious of the evidence being presented to you. Uh, Kahneman goes on to say, it appears to be a feature of system one that cognitive ease is associated with good feelings. Um, he talks a little bit about that and some examples of that. Um, let's see, what else here from this chapter? Um, he goes on to say, these findings add to the growing evidence that good mood, intuition, creativity, gullibility, and re increased reliance on system one form a cluster. At the other pole, sadness, vigilance, suspicion, an analytical approach, and increased effort go together. A happy mood loosens the control of system two over performance. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting to think about the more you engage system two, that is associated with sadness, vigilance, suspicion, analytical approach, and increased effort. Um, but on the other end, system one uh, is related to uh, good mood, intuition, creativity, gullibility, and increased reliance on system one. Um, for the cognitive ease. So cognitive ease allows you to rely more on system one. It's associated with a good mood and intuition, creativity, gullibility, whereas cognitive strain is related to sadness, vigilance, suspicion, an analytical approach, and increased effort also go together. So there's this tension between gullibility uh, good mood, intuition, creativity on one hand, and analytical analytical thought and analytical approach, suspicion, vigilance, and sadness on the other hand. So related to things about processing information, but also moods and feelings. He ends this chapter by saying, it was beyond imagining that bad font influences judgment of truth and improves cognitive performance or that an emotional response to cognitive ease of a triad of words mediates impressions of coherence. Psychology has come a long way. So these things may seem hard for hard to you to believe. They also were not accepted in mainstream psychology 30 or 40 years ago, as Kahneman tells us. At the end of this chapter, we have a few more water cooler chats. And the first one is, Let's not dismiss their business plan just because the font makes it hard to read. Second one, we must be inclined to believe it because it has been repeated so often, but let's think it through again. Third one, familiarity breeds liking, 
This is a mere exposure effect. Fourth, I'm in a very good mood today and my system two is weaker than usual. I should be extra careful. Takes us to chapter six, norms, surprises, and causes. Kahneman um, starts the section of assessing normality by saying the main function of system one is to maintain and update a model of your personal world which represents what is normal in it. The model is constructed by associations that link ideas of circumstances, events, actions, and outcomes that co-occur with some regularity, either at the same time or within a relatively short interval. As these links are formed and strengthened, the pattern of associated ideas comes to represent the structure of events in your life, and it determines your interpretation of the present as well as your expectations of the future. So our brains here, um, uh, and in particular in system one, uh, continually maintains and updates a model of your personal world and how you perceive things, how you think about them, what feels normal to you. And it's very good at doing that. Um, and uh, Kahneman says, um, uh, talking about surprises as deviations from norms, that there are two main varieties of surprise. Some expectations are active and conscious. You know you are waiting for a particular event to happen. When the hour is near, you may be expecting the sound of the door as your child returns from school. When the door opens, you expect the sound of a familiar voice. You will be surprised if an actively expected event does not occur. But there is a much larger category of events that you expect passively. You don't wait for them, but you are not surprised when they happen. These events are normal in a situation, though not sufficiently probable to be actively expected. Kahneman goes on to say, studies of brain responses have shown that violations of normality are detected with astonishing speed and subtlety. So your system one is very good at noticing something that's out of place. And he goes on to say, we have norms for a vast number of categories, and these norms provide the background for the immediate detection of anomalies, such as the examples that were being used here, such as pregnant men and tattooed aristocrats. System 1, uh, as Kahneman says, which understands language, has access to norms of categories which specify the range of plausible values as well as the most typical cases. Kahneman goes on to talk about how we see causes and intentions. Um, he says, the commonly accepted wisdom that we infer physical causality from repeated observations of correlations among events. Um, which was going back to Hume's examination of the association of ideas. But Michaud, Michaud had a different idea. He argued that we see causality just as directly as we see color. Um, and he has some, some experiments to show that. Uh, Kahneman says, we are evidently ready from birth to have impressions of causality which do not depend on reasoning about patterns of causation. They are products of system one. He says, your mind is ready and even eager to identify agents, assign them personality traits and specific intentions, and view their actions as expressing individual propensities. So we have an innate 
desire from system one to assign the attribute of agency and causation to things. It helps tell a coherent story in our system one brain. He says the psychologist Paul Bloom, writing in The Atlantic in 2005, presented the provocative claim that our inborn readiness to separate physical and intentional causality explains the near universality of religious beliefs. He observes that we perceive the world of objects as essentially separate from the world of minds, making it possible for us to envision soulless bodies and bodiless souls. The two modes of causation that we are set to perceive make it natural for us to accept the two central beliefs of many religions. An immaterial divinity is the ultimate cause of the physical world, and immortal souls temporarily control our bodies while we live and leave them behind as we die. In Bloom's view, the two concepts of causality were shaped separately by evolutionary forces building the origins of religion into the structure of System 1. Kahneman goes on to say, the prominence of causal intuitions is a recurrent theme in this book because people are prone to apply causal thinking inappropriately to situations that require statistical reasoning. Statistical thinking derives conclusions about individual cases from properties of categories and ensembles. Unfortunately, System 1 does not have the capability for this mode of reasoning. System 2 can learn to think statistically, but few people receive the necessary training. Again, statistics is hard, um, but for certain types of, for understanding causality, we need statistics. And System 1 just prepares stories for us that, uh, from the associative machine and doesn't really get at causal processes often. So we have some more water cooler quotes, uh, speaking of norms and causes. First one, when the second applicant also turned out to be an old friend of mine, I wasn't quite as surprised. Very little repetition is needed for a new experience to feel quite normal. When we survey, the second one, when we, sur when we survey the reaction to these products, let's make sure we don't focus exclusively on the average. We should consider the entire range of normal reactions. Third, she can't accept that she was just unlucky. She needs a causal story she will end up thinking that someone intentionally sabotaged her work. Okay, that brings us to Chapter 7, Trucking On Along. Uh, chapter 7 is a machine for jumping to conclusions. Kahneman says, Jumping to conclusions is efficient if the conclusions are likely to be correct and the cost of an occasional mistake acceptable, and if the jump saves much time and effort. Jumping to conclusions is risky when the situation is unfamiliar, the stakes are high, and there is no time to collect more information. So, discussing a number of experiments, Kahneman says the moral is significant. When System 2 is otherwise engaged, we will believe almost anything. System 1 is gullible and biased to believe. System 2 is in charge of doubting and unbelieving, but System 2 is sometimes busy and often lazy. This is where we're first exposed to the idea of a confirmation bias. Kahneman says the operations of associative memory contribute to a general confirmation bias. A deliberate search for confirming evidence, known as positive test strategy, is also how System 2 tests hypotheses. 
contrary to the rules of philosophers of science who advise testing hypotheses by trying to refute them, people, and scientists quite often, seek data that are likely to be compatible with the beliefs they currently hold. So, this goes back to something we mentioned earlier. There's a um, hypothesis that we believe to be true, some conclusion, and rather than finding evidence to the contrary, our brain typically looks for evidence to confirm what we already believe. And that is known as the confirmation bias. The second bias we get here is the halo effect, uh, which is, as Kahneman tells us, the tendency to like or dislike everything about a person, including things you have not observed. It is known as the halo effect. So you get an impression of someone or something, and you give that impression a lot of weight, a lot of consideration. And this has some consequences. For example, Kahneman says, the sequence in which we observe characteristics of a person is often determined by chance. Sequence matters, however, because the halo effect increases the weight of first impressions, sometimes to the point that subsequent information is mostly wasted. And it gives us some example, uh, some language around, uh, some discussion around how to deal with the halo effect, and uses an example of grading students' tests. And he talks about how he used to grade one test uh, per person, like grade one person's test, all the essay questions. But he noticed that it kind of had a halo effect from the first question. Whatever grade they got on the first question, the essay seemed to spill over into the rest of the essay questions. And then what he did instead was go through and grade all of the question one question as all the question one, all the first essays of each exam, then all of the second essays, then all the third essays. And that helps him, as he says, decorrelate the error of the halo effect. So if you're not, uh, if you don't give yourself an opportunity to engage in the halo effect per person by instead doing one question at a time across all the individuals, you can decorrelate your error. He says, however, the magic of error reduction works well only when the observations are independent and the errors are uncorrelated. And the errors are uncorrelated. If the observers share a bias, the aggregation of judgments will not reduce it. Allowing the observers to influence each other effectively reduces the size of the sample and with the precision of the group estimate. He goes on to say, the principle of independent judgments and decorrelated errors has immediate applications for the conduct of meetings, an activity in which executives and organizations spend a great deal of their working days. A simple rule can help. Before an issue is discussed, all members of the committee should be asked to write a brief summary of their position. This procedure makes good use of the value of the diversity of knowledge and opinions in the group. Standard practice of open discussion gives too much weight to the opinions of those who speak early and assertively, causing others to line up behind them. So we've talked about confirmation bias, the halo effect. The next one is what you see is all there is. And Kahneman says about this, an essential design feature of the associative machine is that it represents only activated ideas. Information that is not retrieved, even unconsciously, from memory might as well not exist. System 1 excels at constructing the best possible story that incorporates ideas currently activated, but it does not, cannot, allow for information it does not have. 
The measure of success for system one is the coherence of the story it manages to create. The amount and quality of the data on which the story is based are largely irrelevant. He was on to say about what you see is all there is. The combination of coherent seeking system one with a lazy system two implies that system two will endorse many intuitive beliefs, which closely reflects the impressions generated by system one. Of course, system two also is capable of a more systematic and careful approach to evidence and of following a list of boxes that must be checked before making a decision. Think of buying a home when you deliberately seek information that you don't have. However, System 1 is expected to influence even the more careful decisions. Its input never ceases. He goes on to say, What you see is all there is facilitates the achievement of coherence and of the cognitive ease that causes us to accept a statement as true. And this causes us to do a few other things. What you see is all, what you see is all there is is related to uh, and a cause of overconfidence. Uh, framing effects. And base rate neglect. All of which are things we will return to. This chapter also ends with some water cooler chat. The first one. She knows nothing about this person's management skills. All she is going by is the halo effect from a good presentation. Second one, let's decorrelate errors by obtaining separate judgments on the issue before any discussion. We will get more information from independent assessments. Third, they made that big decision on the basis of a good report from one consultant. What you see is all there is. They did not seem to realize how little information they had. Fourth, they didn't want more information that might spoil their story. What you see is all there is. Chapter 8 talks about how judgments happen. Kahneman says, system, system 2 receives questions or generates them. In either case, it directs attention and searches memory to find the answers. System 1 operates differently. It continuously monitors what is going on outside and inside the mind and continuously generates assessments of various aspects of the situation without specific intention and with little or no effort. These basic assessments play an important role in intuitive judgment because they are easily substituted for more difficult questions. This is the essential idea of the heuristics and biases approach. So these basic intuitive assessments generated by System 1 are often substituted in when we should be making more uh, systematic, um, rational decisions and activating system two. A little more on basic assessments, Kahneman says, system one has been shaped by evolution to provide a continuous assessment of the main problems that an organism must solve to survive. For a specific example of basic assessment, consider the ability to discriminate friend from foe at a brief glance. Kahneman gives some examples of that. really interesting. Um, one of them talks about how ratings of competence uh, were far more predictive of voting outcomes than likability, for example. Um, and uh, let's see here. So system one understands language, as Kahneman tells us, of course, and understanding depends 
System 1 understands language, of course, and understanding depends on the basic assessments that are routinely carried out as part of the perception of events and the comprehension of messages. These assessments include computations of similarity and representativeness, attributions of causality, and evaluations of the availability of associations and exemplars. Kahneman goes on to talk about how System 1 represents categories by a prototype or a set of typical exemplars. It deals well with averages, but poorly with sums. The size of the category, the number of instances it contains, tends to be ignored in judgments of what I will call sum-like variables. He gives some examples of that. Um, he talks about intensity matching and uh, about how things that have more or less of something um, for example, uh, more happy, more popular, more severe, more powerful. Um, and that system one it matches intensity across these different types of variables. So you can uh, think of if you have a um, high GPA, for example, is the is the example that uh, that Kahneman uses um, um, that they are likely to be also have high scores in other things and there's some problems associated with this uh, and we'll talk more about that later but just know for now that System 1 likes to match levels of intensity uh, across, uh, across variables, but then has a hard time taking on other attributes of those different variables. And that's where statistics is going to be helpful. Kahneman talks about the mental shotgun. He says, however, the control over intended computations is far from precise. We often compute much more than we want or need. I call this excess computation the mental shotgun. It's impossible to aim at a single point with a shotgun because it shoots pellets that scatter. And it seems almost equally difficult for System 1 not to do more than System 2 charges it to do. In other words, System 1's hyperactive. It's providing more information than System 2 needs. And in sometimes, in some ways, this gets in the way of System 2 doing its methodical uh, job. And Kahneman gives some examples of that. Some more water cooler quotes. Speaking of judgment, evaluating people as attractive or not is a basic assessment. You do that automatically whether or not you want to, and it influences you. Second one, there are circuits in the brain that evaluate dominance from the shape of the face. He looks the part for a leadership role. Third, the punishment won't feel just unless its intensity matches the crime just like you can match the loudness of sound to the brightness of a light. Fourth, this was a clear instance of mental shotgun. He asked whether he thought the company was financially sound, but he couldn't forget that he likes their product. Okay, the final chapter of this part is chapter 9, answering an easier question. Kahneman says, I propose a simple account of how we generate intuitive opinions on complex matters. If a satisfactory answer to a hard question is not found quickly, System 1 will find a related question 
that is easier and will answer it. I call the operation of answering one question in place of another substitution. I also adopt the following terms. The target question is the assessment you intend to produce. The heuristic question is the simpler question that you answer instead. He says the technical definition of heuristic is a simple procedure that helps find adequate though often imperfect answers difficult answers to difficult questions. Some examples he says he offers are a target question that is how much would you contribute to save an end endangered species? The heuristic response, heuristic question is how much emotion do I feel when I think of dying dolphins? Target question might be how happy are you with your life these days? Heuristic question, what is my mood right now? Target question, how popular will the president be six months from now? Heuristic question, how popular is the president right now? So he goes on to talk a little bit more about this. Um, he says the mental shotgun makes it easy to generate quick answers to difficult questions without imposing much hard work on your lazy system two. Another capability of system one, intensity ma matching is available to solve um, that problem. He's referencing to how much to pay for uh, endangered species. Recall that both feelings and contribution dollars are intensity scales. I can feel more or less strongly about dolphins, and there is a contribution that matches the intensity of my feelings. The dollar amount that will come to my mind is the matching amount. He says, uh, Kahneman goes on, the automatic processes of the mental shotgun and intensity matching often make available one or more questions excuse me, make available one or more answers to easy questions that could be mapped onto the target question. On some occasions, substitution will occur and a heuristic answer will be endorsed by System 2. Of course, System 2 has the opportunity to reject this intuitive answer or to modify it by incorporating other information. However, a lazy System 2 often follows the path of least effort and endorses a heuristic answer without much scrutiny of whether it is truly appropriate. And uh, Goneman gives a few more examples and then, and then states, as this example, uh, another example he gives, illustrates a judgment that is based on substitution. So this heuristic, this substituting a heuristic question in for a target question will inevitably be biased in predictable ways. In this case, it happens so deep in the perceptual system that you can, you simply cannot help it. And that was relating to an example there, figure 9, on page 100. He works through an example of mood heuristics for happiness and how if you ask someone how happy they are these days and then ask them how many dates they had in the last month, those two answers are not correlated. But if you reverse the order and say how many dates did you have last month and how happy are you these days, those answers become very strongly correlated. And what happens there is you have been given a heuristic question to answer a target question. And when you start with that heuristic question about how many dates did you have last month, and then you move on to the target question of how happy are you these days, you actually stick with 
They're still anchored to, which is something we'll talk about as well, the, the more narrow question. Kahneman talks about the affect heuristic. He says, the dominance of conclusions over arguments is most pronounced where emotions are involved. The psychologist Paul Slovic has proposed an affect heuristic in which people let their likes and dislikes determine their beliefs about the world. Your political preference determines the arguments that you find compelling, for example. He says, the primacy of conclusions does not mean that your mind is completely closed and that your opinions are wholly immune to information and sensible reasoning. Your beliefs even and even your emotional attitude may change at least a little when you learn the risk of an activity you disliked is smaller than you thought. However, the information about lower risks will also change your view of the benefits for the better, even if nothing was said about benefits in the information you received. He goes on to say, in the context of attitudes, System 2 is more of an apologist for the emotions of System 1 than a critic of those emotions, an endorser rather than an enforcer. Its search for information and arguments is mostly constrained to information that is consistent with existing beliefs, not with the intention to examine them. An active, coherent, seeking System 1 subjects, suggests solutions to an undemanding System 2. And Kahneman finishes chapter 9 with two things that I think are worth sharing. One is another set of water cooler uh, quotes. The first is, do we still remember the question we are trying to answer, or have we substituted an easier one? Second, the question we face is whether this candidate can succeed. The question we seem to answer is whether she interviews well. Let's not substitute. Three, he likes the project, so he thinks its costs are low and benefits are high. Nice example of the affect heuristic. Four, we are using last year's performance as a heuristic to predict the value of the firm several years from now. Is this heuristic good enough? What other information do we need? All right, I'm going to finish this with uh, the same way that Kahneman finishes part one, which is a list of the characteristics of system one. And there's a number of them. So I'll just directly uh, quote those from his table at the end of part one on page 105 of, of the book. Characteristics of System 1. Generates impressions, feelings, and inclinations. When endorsed by System 2, these beliefs become these become beliefs, attitudes, and intentions. System 1 operates automatically and quickly with little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control. System 1 can be programmed by System 2 to mobilize attention when a particular pattern is detected. System 1 executes skilled responses and generates skilled intuitions after adequate training. System 1 creates a coherent pattern of activated ideas and associative memory. System 1 links a sense of cognitive ease to illusions of truth, pleasant feelings, and reduced vigilance. System 1 distinguishes the surprising from the normal. It infers and invents causes and intentions. It neglects ambiguity and suppresses doubt. System 1 is biased to believe and confirm. System 1 exaggerates emotional consistency. This is the halo effect. It focuses on existing evidence and ignores absent evidence. That's the what you see is all there is effect. It generates a limited set of basic assessments. System 1 represents sets by norms and prototypes, but does not integrate. System 1 matches intensities across scales. It computes more than intended. It's the mental shotgun. 
It substi sometimes substitutes an easier question for a difficult one. That's the use of heuristics. System one is more sensitive to changes than to states. That's from prospect theory, which we'll see later. It overweights low probabilities. It shows diminishing sensitivity to quantity. It responds more strongly to losses than to gains. And it frames decision problems narrowly and isolation from one another. And those last few are previews of some of the things to come. Okay, this was a lot. Uh, I think we're getting on the hour and a half mark, but I didn't want to skip over any of the important things in part one. Um, I hope you now have a good picture of the characters of System 1 and System 2 and the way that System 1 strongly influences System 2, the fact that System 2 requires attention and effort and that it is a lazy system, while System 1 is hyperactively giving us more information that we need, the idea that System 1 is an associative machine, puts associates ideas and events together, this uh, idea of cognitive ease versus cognitive strain and some of the causes and consequences of that, the role norm surprises and causes play, how we are a machine for jumping to conclusions and we suffer from the confirmation bias and the halo effect and the what you see is all there is, how we substitute target questions for easier heuristic questions, and all this is just the beginning. So hope you enjoy and thank you for listening along. The next lecture will be part two, heuristics and biases. Thanks again.